Mr. Drew has two roles at Credit Suisse. As well as being Chief Sustainability Officer, she is also Global Head of the Swiss Bank's Sustainability Strategy, Advisory and Finance, or SSAF Group. Drew's days are full. She says she'd like to clone herself many times over to fit all that she has to do into her workday. She sits on two risk committees and an ESG steering group and co-chairs the bank's Sustainability Leaders Committee. She's not an expert in ESG by training. For most of her career, Drew was an investment banker, high achieving, of course, working in IBD and across capital markets in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. In 2017, she was made CEO of Impact Advisory and Finance in Credit Suisse, the precursor to the bank's SSAF group, where she sought successfully to match hard-nosed capital market solutions to the needs and demands of clients who were faced with the need to be more ESG-friendly. It worked. This week, in between sessions at the UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, Drew found time to talk to Euromoney on Zoom to discuss her hopes for COP26, how banks and corporates can change, and the benefits of sticky capital. This is a podcast, Euromoney podcast, part of the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP26, a series of podcasts that we're doing um, for the purposes of informing people who have been living under a rock that sustainability is an issue. Yeah, Marissa Drew, your, your job is, well, your two jobs are Credit Suisse's Chief Sustainability Officer and also Group Global Head of Sustainability Strategy, Advisory and Finance. Um, I, I, know you're, I know you're in Glasgow. I, I, think, I think you're in Glasgow. Um, I am. You managed to find an Airbnb place. <laughs> I am far outside of Glasgow because uh, otherwise uh, my very unsustainable uh, hotel bill would not be something that could be justified. <laughs> right, so let's come back to COP26 in a bit because there's plenty to talk about there. Um, but just coming back to your, um, your, your two, your twin jobs for the purposes of people who are listening, um, what is it that each one of the, I think the Chief Sustainability Officer will be okay relatively straightforward but what is group head of sustainability strategy advisory and finance what does that what does that tri- tripartite of um, talent entail? <laughs> yes yes so we uh we affectionately call it ssaf just to make it easy but um essentially that role is uh all client facing so it is everything that has to do with advising supporting and financing our external clients on their sustainability journey whatever that means for them but uh, we, we break our client segments down principally into three areas. One, you've got private clients who are investing their own personal wealth along sustainability lines or values-led um, investing. We have the institutional community, so the big pools of capital looking to deploy at scale. And then finally, we've got our third constituent, which is our corporate clients. And uh, many of them are on the journey to migrate their business plans uh, to make them uh, uh, net zero or, or at least decarbonize. Or if um, some of our younger corporate clients are, are these disruptive companies that are shaking up industries with a sustainability purpose and mission. So we provide advice to them and help them raise capital, uh, act for them in an M&A capacity as they look to maybe buy or sell assets that align with that journey or not, and, and so on. So all of that very much client serving. And then the CSO hat, Chief Sustainability Officer, is looking at Credit Suisse as an enterprise. So setting our sustainability strategy and ambition for the bank and responsible for our, say, public commitments, um, our big financing commitment where we have uh, publicly said we, over the next decade, will aim to raise 300 billion Swiss francs of sustainable and UN SDG aligned finance, our net zero commitment and so on. But very much us as an organization is the second job. You have a weekly, I think, strategy meeting. um, And and, and of course, different parts of the uh, bank 
dials in, you have uh, presentations, you have sort of uh, someone from each significant department present on each of those. But but the overall strategy that Credit Suisse has with dealing with all of this, with with structuring everything, your entire approach, your entire rationale for sustainability, it's been built over a period of time. But is it is it? it I guess it's it's continuously being built on. You, you built foundations. Yes. When were those foundations built? And how do you go about ensuring that you, every day, every week, and so on, you're, you're building extra levels on top of it, the right levels? Yeah, sure. Um, so I took on this role back in 2017, which is really the predecessor of the SSAF role, our client-facing role. And, and um, when I took that role, we had actually had uh, quite a bit of activity sprinkled across the bank uh, where we had people with a passion and desire to make change but often it was an adjunct to their day job. And so when I took the role on in 2017, it was really the first time that we had somebody with a mandate globally and holistically to bring it all together and drive it in in a sensible fashion. So that's really where I would say this uh, began in organized fashion in earnest. And then uh, it took on a whole new level a year ago, whereby we um, had a reorganization and created a function called SRI, Sustainability Research and Investment Solutions. And that's really the umbrella that houses my business, as well as our research teams that are marketing and branding, very much with a notion of a couple thousand people driving toward uh, sustainability. But as you say, this is an incredibly dynamic space. As as you well know, it is, um, we laughingly say, sustainability never sleeps because um, it is, is full on. And we need to evolve as, as the space evolves. So what are we seeing? We're seeing a significant amount of new and increased regulatory intervention, setting out prescriptive rules on taxonomy and how we must deal with clients, how we label products and so on. So we need to be on top of that. Uh, we also made our net zero commitment so that we have said that we will be net zero across our scope one, two and three emissions by 2050, but setting interim targets um, and delivering on those targets by 2030. So that is an enormous bill of work because that means us as an organization, our footprint, our sourcing. So who is our supply chain? Are they on the same path? And then finally for scope three, it's who are we banking? So there's a huge effort there to map the clients that we have exposure to and that we bank today and ensure that um, we're on a journey alongside those clients because it wouldn't work for us if we say we are through scope three getting our emissions down and perhaps our clients were going the other way that would cut against that ambition. So uh, that's quite an iterative process and very complex, both the sourcing data and how you map it and how do you engage with the clients. But that's an example of the type of thing that uh, is, is ongoing. So none of this is static really at the moment. But I think that's a good thing because that speaks to how much ambition and enthusiasm there is globally to uh, to be more sustainable in across all businesses. It fe- it feels to me like there was the pre pandemic, and I think you mentioned this before. But pre pandemic, um, you were chasing this story. Now since yes. COVID started, it's chasing you. Um, it it it's, it feels like it's been a manic kind of couple of years for you, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? No, no, um, you're absolutely right. When I took this role on, I, I say that oftentimes I was the one pushing the agenda, slightly being that annoying, agitating person, trying to raise awareness, trying to explain why this was serious and important, why it was strategic and critical for our organization to engage with our clients on the topic, also to think about what our role is going to be in society as an organization and so on. But about 18 months in is when we flipped over and we went from me pushing, pushing, pushing the agenda to it being a pull. 
And the poll was coming from everywhere. It was coming from our internal stakeholders. It was coming from all of our external stakeholders. And as you rightly say, it's um, it's it's full on. <laughs> it's full on is, is, is probably the understatement. When people were in lockdown the first time, it was when wealth management, when private banking and wealth management had a kind of, not a second wind, because there's always a, um, this, you know, that's, been going for centuries, the, in, the industry, but people sat down there, time for themselves to sit down with family and, and think about what their money meant for them. And that obviously mattered to the pandemic, to sustainability as well. Do you remember a, a moment where, um, where you kind of went, okay, well, people are taking this seriously? Yeah, I think the moment came a few months into the pandemic. I think the first couple of months were such disruption that people were grappling with what the pandemic was going to mean. There was extraordinary amount of fear rippling through markets and, and you know, people's worries about not only their own health and their family's health, but, you know, what is this going to mean for their businesses and how are we going to cope and so on. I think a few months in, probably about the summer of 2020, is when um, that, that moment of quiet or pause allowed everybody to be a little bit self-introspective and reflective and began to appreciate um, what lockdown could bring those who are fortunate. You know, you have the time to spend with your family, start asking yourself what's important to you. We saw a, a very much a change, I'd say, in the mindset of, of our wealth clients, because now you're, you are talking about people as individuals, asking themselves questions about what does my family stand for? What's my legacy that I want to leave? Philanthropically, we saw a huge response of our clients wanting to do something to help. And it was little things and big things. It was maybe sometimes close to home with uh, looking after care workers. But it was also, you know, very, very big movements on the part of our clients wanting to be a part of, say, vaccine um, uh, delivery or, or, or vaccine um, uh, uh, discovery. And so all of this, I think, um, brought that link between what do you do with your platform and your wealth and your privilege to try to solve some of society's big challenges. And the other biggie to me was uh, when the, the link was made or the penny dropped, as we say, um, between environmental problems and social problems. How interlinked they really are. So environmental problems um, become human health problems. Um, environmental problems are becoming social problems when we think about those who are disadvantaged and going to be much more disadvantaged um, by virtue of what climate change effects are going to be and so on. So that, that was about the time where I think that mindset shift happened and we saw that becoming reflective of how people wanted to deploy capital. We're now at COP26. The last few weeks perhaps have been, does it feel like perhaps some individuals on the world stage have been downplaying hopes for COP with the hope that it will be outperforming lower expectations and doing well? Well, I, I have to say I am an eternal optimist. I do believe um, in human ingenuity and collective power to drive change. On the other hand, I, I don't think um, this sort of downplaying is, is brinksmanship. I think there's a genuine fear uh, that it, this is very complicated. Um, if we had had all the answers, we would have acted sooner. And I think the fear is that um, climate change in particular is such an amorphous thing. You know, it's it's big. It's, it's It affects every one of us, but it disproportionately affects different countries. So how do you have global harmony in this drive? And I think so what you're seeing is uh, some of the fears maybe playing out 
as they're expressed by political leaders, that maybe we won't make the change that we need to make here at COP, and that we are reaching a point where it is getting to be too late uh, to, to keep us at the one and a half degrees, which is the ultimate goal of the Paris Climate Accord, is to keep us around that one and a half C mark, because anything more than that is pretty catastrophic for our way of life. So I, I think this is a combination. There's optimism and hope, which is why everyone is here and you see such energy. But at the same time, I think it's a very sobering um, picture as we enter into all these discussions. So uh, it's hard to uh, maybe call it. But what my hopes are for COP, and we can maybe go into a little more detail about some of the things we'd love to see. But one of the big ones would be some sort of agreement on a global price for carbon. I firmly believe that if we are able to tax the negative things we do or put a cost, if you will, on the negative things we do, and that cost will increase as climate change gets more problematic, uh, it, capital money is smart. Money flows where opportunity sits. And if it becomes too costly to do those activities, they'll flow elsewhere. And so I think these are the kinds of things that I, would be extremely helpful to accelerate the flow of capital in the right place and to have behavior change actually take place. I do. I actually am hopeful that we will have uh, at least most of the world agreeing on a phase out of coal. Uh, coal, there, there really isn't a reason in the distant future, not too distant future, for us to um, continue to support the um, creation of new coal-fired energy sources, and we need to move much more swiftly to renewable sources. So I, I believe that that is actually within our reach. Now, we are sadly missing China and Russia in the equation here at COP, so that is um, uh, unfortunate because you do want global agreement on this. Although, you know, China has made statements about um, their willingness to support, you know, a, a reduction or phase out of coal. But, uh, but that's one. Another one is uh, for us to, for, for policymakers to agree to redirect subsidies from some of the harmful things that we do that might go part and parcel to, with, uh, with a price on carbon. But, um, you know, carbon taxation is, is a way that policymakers, you know, disincentives or the alternative is incentives. I'm a big fan of incentives. So if subsidies could be redirected from the things that are polluting towards the things that are green, uh, that's an activity that lies within the hands of policymakers. So that sort of nudge would be very helpful. I also think that um, we are nudging ever closer to agreement on accounting standards that would provide the same sort of harmonious disclosure on, uh, on sustainability metrics like we have with traditional accounting standards. So there was a lot of work being done in that place. And you'll see some announcements here at COP, no doubt. It feels like there were past events where broad ambitions were set out, were framed. We're now at a point in 2021 where there is nowhere left to go. If we compare this COP, as you say, it's different this time um, with, with the, the Paris talks before, which is it was principally um, originally an intergovernmental uh, gathering. And so it was very much policymakers and, and global leaders um, who are elected officials making decisions here at COP. What we see this time is the massive, massive corporate and financial services response. So here we are at COP and virtually, you know, every major large cap company, every major financial institution, they're all here. We are all here. And this is the private sector saying that we also need to do our part. So it can't be only the purview of governments and it also can't be only the private sector, but uh, both in, in concert actually have a fighting chance of, of getting this done. So I think that's what's different now. Uh, what are we doing um, as a financial institution? And we believe our role at its heart, you know, our, our guiding North Star is um, the ability or the desire to mobilize capital at scale and direct it towards solving some of these intractable problems. And so at, at, at very simplistically, 
It is in whatever capacity that means. So it can be raising capital for those disruptive companies that really have interesting business model. They can be new technologies or uh, new ideas that can um, shake up the existing industries that maybe aren't so sustainable. So do it a different way. We can finance those. We can help the tr with transition capital. So the existing mature industries raise the capex for them or help them raise the capex so they can invest in their businesses and transition those businesses to cleaner, greener models. We can also help then our clients who have capital, whether they're private investing their own personal money or whether it's institutions which uh, run pools of capital on behalf of, of their constituents, we can help create those financial investments that deliver outcomes. We can uh, put it in a format that works for that type of investor, whether it's institutional at scale, it could be individual, um, suitable, of course, it has to be suitable for risk tolerances, but we can create those opportunities for our clients to allow that capital to flow. So those are all areas that we can play a role and are playing a role. The other area that I would say is this idea of collaborating across the financial services industry in, in the first instance, but, but also across, we always say, unnatural actors, bringing ourselves together perhaps with those that we wouldn't ordinarily uh, do business with or participate in the same structure or the same project together. That could be financial institution alongside an NGO or a big bank with a development funder. Uh, it could be um, a civil society together with banks or all of the above coming together to attack some of these really thorny problems. Perfect example is the area of biodiversity, where you see a coming together of a whole bunch of different stakeholders, all with a very common mission to attack what's a very complicated space and figure out ways that we can direct capital in a very, very specific and clear way so that it creates those, those good outcomes, which will help preserve uh, our, our biodiverse resources that we have, which are also integral to uh, mitigating climate change. So all these things are also interconnected. How do you help your clients? Um, because they're all at these different stages of development. They are. And also, it's very different depending on what industry you're talking about. So you've mentioned a couple of industries. You know, some of the industries today, you have a green solution. Other industries, we haven't. it, it doesn't exist today. So um, you mentioned cement, I believe. So there isn't a green version of cement today. So a lot of building materials don't have a truly green solution. So we need to fund the technological development, really scale that up and put more and more capital towards a lot of the work that's, that's um, in that design or that innovation phase today. So you start at least for a financial services organization. So I can't necessarily speak to a government. Um, we, we might have a little bit of influence to, to, towards government, governments, but we, we operate in the private sector. And I think that really is our patch. And that's where we can do the most, I would say, you know, the most good. But you have to look at, by industry, what are those areas that are problematic? Is it fundamentally a technological problem because we don't have a solution? Or is there a solution and we just need to invest in the ability to move quicker towards that better, better outcome? Uh, do you, you also have to look, you, you pointed it out, in supply chains, not at the, only at the source, but every step in between, what can you do? What are those little interventions that you can do along the way to make it cleaner and greener? It could be the product at its root. It could be the transportation that it gets it to its end use. It could be the packaging that it's in and all of that needs to be looked at. And so I think we can help our clients take a good hard look all the way through their supply chains, all the way through their own operations and make suggestions based on the best practices that we see 
We can also encourage our clients to be forthcoming with disclosure on those items um, in their financial statements that could be material, because one of the things we're, we're up to is to help identify what the material financially um, important line items are that a company should drive toward because, you know, company also has to run their business. They can't have everybody piling in and saying, you have to solve for 50 things. You've got to call for CO2 emissions reduction and 10 other things and run your company. But what are the one or two things that each company by industry could do that would make that material difference, that 80-20 rule? Let's encourage and nudge that and, and suggest that we can provide finance for that. So it is very complicated, which is, you know, why we need a lot of great minds around the table to think through these solutions and the outcomes and also then jointly agree on the direction of travel. Because it also doesn't help if you have uh, a lot of dissonance with what the right answer is, because then you might have people wasting time heading down wrong paths. So I think that's another area where we see a lot of um, maybe uh, action now is this collaborative effect to agree on solution and then drive toward it in unison. How do we ensure corporate and financial institutions know what they are supposed to report in in ESG terms? Or to put it another way, how do we ensure they are reporting everything that's necessary in ESG terms without overloading them with unnecessary and burdensome compliance? So some of this will be voluntary. So companies choose to report maybe certain sustainability metrics that matter, those financially material line items that matter that we're talking about. So in that instance, it's voluntary, at least it is today. But if we can have global agreement across a a given industry that uh, financial providers could agree that this is the right thing to disclose, the investors say that I'm comfortable with that disclosure and it's harmonious, then I can invest behind it. And then we need the companies to agree to, to put it out there and be transparent with it. That's one example of where all of this can, can come together and do it in an efficient way. Um, where it's inefficient is perhaps maybe in, in the regulatory regime, if you had 10 different regulators in 10 different jurisdictions all telling you you must do it a different way. So one of the things we certainly want to encourage is regulatory harmony. Today, we see the EU, as an example, taking a great deal of leadership on taxonomy and certain regulation with respect to sustainable investment. What we'd like is other regulators around the globe um, drafting in underneath that so that those of us who are operating in the space can have one set of rules and standards. Very happy to have that regulatory intervention because I think that's useful and helpful. Um, because it also does create sort of common standards. But that's the sort of thing that would be much more helpful to our, our industry. Are we starting to see big groups of unnatural actors, world leaders, big NGOs, the chief executives of banks or S&P 500 firms, come together to find solutions to the pressing challenges we face? Yeah, we are definitely, definitely seeing that. But that is new. That's the, one of the new, new things, because in, I think this whole sustainability space in many respects, because historically people operate very much in their silos. This is the patch of government. This is the patch of the NGO community. And this is the patch of finance. And never should those cross. And what I think the great recognition is that each of us have something to bring to the table, and particularly on complicated topics where everybody's expertise and that different lens that they bring as they come together can actually create better solutions outcomes. So that diversity of thought but also diversity of experience. So for instance, you know, when we are creating sustainable investment opportunities, what do we as a financial institution do well? We can structure transactions that speak to the needs of investors. We can also distribute, we can raise the capital because that's what we do very well. But we aren't an NGO. As an example, we've got, uh, for instance, a conservation investment. 
we have not been the ones on the ground rolling up our sleeves and operating in those areas day to day on the ground. But if we collaborate with an NGO and we bring them into the structure, we can then make sure the capital is structured properly, is raised in the first instance, but then it's directed at things that really matter. And that's where we would take advice perhaps from a conservation organization. And those are some really beautiful case studies, but uh, that wasn't an obvious thing not so long ago. And oftentimes at the very beginning when you're bringing these so-called unnatural actors together, even trying to get everybody to speak the same language. Because oftentimes there's a lot of assumptions when you walk into the room about what um, somebody's uh, expertise is or isn't or what they can and can't do. And sometimes just literally sitting around the table and comparing notes and really being quite transparent with each other you know, leads to these really wonderful sparks of uh, innovation, innovation of thought, innovation of um, new ways of, of approaching a problem. And we've seen some real breakthroughs in, in sustainability when, when those types of uh, collaborations happen. Talk to me a bit about the sticky capital. Um, how important is it? What is it? Historically, conservation was very much uh, thought to be the domain of governments or philanthropists. It really wasn't a place where people thought about the deployment of capital for return, so investment capital. And yet, nobody ever asked why that couldn't be the case. We did ask that very specifically in the ocean, where we were very surprised to see how underinvested from a private capital point of view the oceans are, despite their absolute necessity to human health and planetary health. And we set about trying in a very sort of rigorous way to identify why was it? Is there something fundamentally that's problematic about oceans that, that requires um, nonprofit capital to go there? Uh, or was there something else behind it? And as we pulled the institutional community, it really wasn't a lack of will, nor was a lack of capital, nor was a lack of belief that it was possible to potentially make returns in, in ocean investing, but nobody had ever presented it in structures that spoke to the needs of those investors at scale, at scale. So it wasn't that people weren't investing in um, o- ocean venture capital businesses or what have you, but in a scaled way. And that was a wonderful moment for us because we said, well, gee, that's what we do well. So why don't we spend a bit of time on that? And when we did have the breakthrough with um, that fund and some of the other projects that we've been working on, it, it is really incredibly gratifying because you believe that your dollar really, really matters. And you can make a very, very big difference in a very, very critical space. So that's what I mean about unlocking sticky capital. So that capital has been sitting on the sidelines that would very much want to participate, but just didn't know how. Our thanks to Marissa Drew. Credit Suisse's Chief Sustainability Officer has a busy schedule in Glasgow this week and next. This has been a podcast in Euromoney's series of talks with influential people attending the UN Climate Change Conference. Thank you.